Welcome to the Only One Business Show with me, your host, James Nathan, chatting to some of the UK's leading business professionals, sharing tips, insights, and advice on how to create amazing customer experiences whilst building bigger, better, and more profitable businesses as a result. What can you do in your business today and in the years to come to truly delight your clients? What exceptional experiences can you give them to take away and cherish? How can you delight the most important person in the world? Satisfaction makes you one of many. Delighting clients makes you the only one. And you can't be just one. You have to be the only one. Welcome to the Only One Business Show with me, your host, James Nathan. And today I've got a fabulous guest for you who's somewhere in the middle of what sounds like the most beautiful part of Africa. He's over 30 years of strategic business, marketing and communications experience. Born in Britain, then London educated and trained in business strategy, development and communications. He's worked personally for business leaders such as Richard Branson and Bill Gates, as well as many other leading global businesses including Qatar Airlines or Airways, HP Goodyear and Barclays. Today he's an internationally sought after as a professional speaker and also become globally renowned as a specialist on the subject of change in a business context. He's carved out an enviable reputation as one of the best business to business speakers and facilitators on the global professional speaking circuit, having addressed over 2,700 conferences. Wow, across Africa, Asia, Europe, the US, and Middle East, his audience is ranging from factory workers to heads of state. He has the ability to consistently and successfully predict in detail changing market performances, trends, and custom consumer behaviors with unerring accuracy for companies, industries, and markets around the world, and all while motivating his business audiences to perform to a better personal standard. Please welcome the other Michael Jackson. Michael, lovely to have you on. Wow, James, listening to that kind of makes me blush wildly. So I'm glad this is just a radio podcast rather than a visual thing as well. I can't believe that's <laughs> me. I mean, it's it's extraordinary. I mean, when I think back to what I've done, you've made me feel very old, Mr. Nathan. But thank you, and it's a pleasure to be with you. Well, do you know what? I'm sorry about that, but it comes with the territory, I guess. If you're 2,700 conferences, goodness me, that's a lot. It's weird. I was chatting with my wife, who I don't see terribly often, and she was talking to me about the accounting state of my business, uh, funny enough, just this week. And she said to me, you know, last year, we haven't done the numbers yet for this year, but last year I did over 180 nights in hotels. Goodness. And she, she said, I've realized now that's why we don't argue as much as we used to before you kind of got more successful. And I think she's probably right. I mean, the last thing you want to do is argue long distance with your spouse, partner or significant other. I tried that once with her, by the way, on WhatsApp, and I lost the argument. So I'm never going to do it again. <laughs> Fair enough, too. Fair enough. And where are you today? You, you, you mentioned somewhere in the middle of Africa, somewhere beautiful. Yeah, in fact, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in glorious sunshine in the middle of South Africa. And like a number of my friends who more recently than I, so we saw the light from the British perspective. I mean, I'm based between uh, Johannesburg and London mainly. Um, but a number of my friends have more recently seen the light than I did. And 
they've moved out of Britain because of the Brexit debacle. And I've got a bunch of British business people that I I meet regularly when I can um, in this part of the world who've lock, stock and barrel moved their businesses out to South Africa. And they call themselves a group called Brexitus, which I think is actually pretty cool. Uh, We have sunshine. We've got great weather. We've got, oh, man, just a really cool quality of life. And um, we depress ourselves by reading the newspapers digitally from the UK every morning when we're in this part of the world. Well, you know, South Africa is an absolutely magnificent place. I I grew up in Perth, so just across the water from you there. Um, And it's interesting to talk to you, well, to hear you saying about people going back to South Africa or going to South Africa. Yeah. Um, When I was young, you know, in the the 70s and 80s in in Western Australia, um, there was a, a plethora of South Africans coming to live in Perth. Um, and escaping or whatever was going on at the time. And we used to call them the boat people, Michael, because they always had a boat. Oh, God, yeah. And and they always used to whinge a lot about the country they'd left behind, going to the dogs. Many of them have returned to South Africa, and it's been a long-distance trip taking their furniture on holiday <laughs> because they're now back here because they've realised that life and the quality of it, even though Oz is a pretty damn good place to be, the quality of life in this part of the world is absolutely sensational. But it's a weird thing for me. Um, you know, it's, I, I tried to put my address on LinkedIn as 37,000 feet, and LinkedIn wouldn't allow it because they said it's not a real address. And I said it is. So somebody the other day at a conference when I was moaning about it said to me, why don't you put your address as 7A? which is a pretty good seat to have on an aircraft, I guess. Yeah. And I said, well, I'll go for 23C. And I tried, because I didn't want to look like I was bragging. And I tried that, and they told me that that wasn't an address either. So I despair. And they won't let you live in two cities. So LinkedIn is way behind the global times. Oh, dear me. 37,000 feet sounds like a, an interesting place to live for a while. Um, the, the amount of hotels you stay in, I hope you're getting good uh, good service when you get there. Yeah, it's weird. I did a conference recently with Coca-Cola and met a man called Tom Vadabonker, who's the global export director for Coca-Cola. Uh-huh. Um, and when I met him and worked with him, um, very privileged to do so, we were checked into a luxury hotel by the client and both flew from one city to another. And it was a really good hotel. I'd stayed in it before. The name was pretty good. Now, Tom Verabonker told me that he spends 240 nights a year in hotels, traveling the world on behalf of that company. And he knows that what a, what a hotel is like, he tells me, from the quality of the reception carpet. And true to form, as we walked into this particular hotel, having arrived at it, he looked down at the carpet. He said to me, Michael, we're not staying here. I said, no, 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 you don't understand. The conference uh, is here tomorrow. And he said, I don't care. And he booked he and I into another hotel in the same city that he knew. And he said, don't worry, Coca-Cola will pay for it because I'm not staying in a place with a crappy carpet and reception. So there you are. I've never been that fussy personally, James, but maybe those people who travel really extensively are. Well, I guess you pick up on things, but also the devil's in the detail, isn't it? You know, if the carpet's no good, maybe something, I don't know, maybe he's guessing something else if they're not looking after that. Although I see Premier Inn have come out with a thing saying they're now going to roll out business suites in their hotels. And I quite like the cheap and cheery Premier Inns in the UK, to be honest, as I've travelled around. Um, you see, I'm not, a, I'm not a hotel snob. Mm. I'll stay wherever the sheets are clean, wherever the breakfast is good, and wherever I've got a safety deposit box to lock up 
my spare glasses because I carry nothing valuable on me ever. But that's it, really. Well, that's uh, that's someone who lives in South Africa a lot looking for a, a safe deposit box. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> yeah, not absolutely. unusual. But uh, no, 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 I've got a very similar standard when I'm staying away. Uh, it must be clean. It must be non-smoking. Other than that, I am not too bothered. It's a, it's an interesting thing, though, as well. And I must tell you that, you know, a lot of clients who book me around the world, the reason I wanted LinkedIn to give my address as, as being on an aircraft um, is that a lot of people look at you and go, he lives where? I mean, I've heard of him. He's a good speaker. I'd like to have him, but I'm not paying him to fly from wherever he lives. And of course, where I choose to live is never my client's problem. Sure. So on my rate for my conferences, I include my travel to the nearest major city. Mm -hmm. So if you want me in, in Italy, you pick me up out of Rome or Milan. If you want me in the States, you pick me up out of New York or Chicago, for that matter. Mm -hmm. And I, I make the travel internationally my problem because I choose to live where I do, um, and it's not the client's issue. And I think that's helped me quite substantially in terms of being able to market myself better as a speaker around the world. Um, the secret to it is, of course, Thanks to people like Qatar Airways and British Airways, I have hundreds of thousands of air miles. Yeah. So it doesn't cost me an awful lot to fly around. And also those uh, those tier points are pretty handy as well, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Although the standard of lounges is going down dramatically. And now you see, now I sound like a snob. Um, I don't want to do that. I'm not a snob at all. But, you know, when I travel, I, I want to sleep. I want to get on a plane. I'm not interested in terrible airline food. I'm not interested in movies. I want to, I want to lie down and sleep. And get off at the other end refreshed and raring to go for my gig. I, I was talking to someone very recently about airlines, and he said, you know, people talk a lot in America about Southwest and how much fun it is and and all that sort of stuff. But he doesn't want that. He wants to be left alone and get to sleep. Um, and some airlines get it and look after their customers that way, and some don't. And I think that that's yes. a very a very common issue with with that sort of business. When you're flying so much, is there a big difference between the airlines these days? Massively. Um, and I think that in particular, the Middle Eastern Airlines, and above them all, is Qatar Airways. Right. I'm not saying that because I've worked with them. I mean, I've worked with them on strategic development. Um, and I've spoken at one or two of their conferences, so they're not really a full-time client. But Qatar Airways delivers one of the finest airline products I've ever been on. British Airways, by comparison, struggles. You know, they're just, they're just not up there on the levels of service. But then again, recently, I traveled from Dublin to Chicago. Um, and I was going to travel from the UK across to Chicago, but a very, very good friend of mine, one of the girls who's brought her business from London, a global business here uh, to South Africa, called Nina and Pinter. She runs a travel consultancy for top people in, in, the, uh, in the corporate world. She told me to fly to America via Dublin. So instead of an extra night in Manchester, I decided at, at great personal cost, I'd have to have a night in Dublin right. before I flew to America. Yeah. Um, and I'm so glad I did because that beer is just sensational. Um, and it, I mean, it was the same price as Manchester, except that when you fly from Dublin, as you can from Shannon, and I now believe one or two other airports around the world, you can pre-clear American immigration um, ah. before you fly and customs. So that when you land, as we subsequently did in Chicago, uh, you arrive as a domestic um, arrival. So there's no security to go through, nothing. You pick up your bag and you go. And the, the key thing behind that story is the saving of time and hours, which I much more appreciate than anything else. I think the ability to avoid long queues um, at both ends of the, you know, of the airport when you travel is sensational. Do you know, if people don't get anything else from this conversation, of course they will, they now know that that's the way to enter the US. 
Oh God, yes. And I think there's there are a number of countries that now offer that. Um, and the other big thing for me is I try and avoid Heathrow like a, a, like a plague, um, which is why I quite often detour around and base myself from Manchester. Right. And I'll go into a European destination and then take a short haul from Amsterdam or wherever it may be to get into Manchester. Because Heathrow is just, it's too old, too slow, too many people. You know, even even with a British passport, which of course I have being born there, um, it's it's just too slow and horrible for me. So yeah, travel advice from Michael Jackson. You can rename <laughs> your podcast, James, if you like. Well, if you ever want to know the best way to go anywhere or the best, the, the biggest tips for travel, someone who flies a lot is the person to talk to. So uh, you know, it's <laughs> uh, it's it, I I use Heathrow um, as my sort of main airport because it's the closest. Um, the closest, I, yeah. You know, I live near Oxford, and everything else is a bloody nightmare to be honest. So, um, you, but I don't fly nearly as much as you. Well, look, they're going to put in. They're going to put a new technology there soon as well, so it'll be a seamless, a more seamless travel experience and long overdue. But sorry, you were going to. Well, ask so, me a yeah, all in good time. They, these things unfortunately cost the airports a lot of money, and they don't make enough, so they have to uh, have to skin it through yep. every little bit we have. What's when you look at the hotels you stay in? Because I'm quite interested in in hotels are usually a good um, indicator of service in different countries. Where do you yes. see, where are the greatest hotels? Where is the best service in, in the hospitality industry? Wow. Again, you know, when you look at what's going on with the development of property in the Middle East, you look at the, the new standard. I was lucky enough to do some work in Dubai for the Jumeirah Group. And of course, they own some iconic properties. You know, you don't get better than the invented seven star service that they deliver, yeah. but you pay through the nose for that. Um, and at the other end of the scale, as I've mentioned, you know, a, a premier inn for me, is clean, functional, and simple. And if that's what you're looking for in the business world, then so be it. You know, their Wi-Fi works, their beds are comfy, the breakfast is more than edible. So I think there's a world of difference in between how much luxury you want and what you don't want. But mostly, you know, I think that, you know, when I'm traveling around the world, I just want, as I mentioned earlier, a clean, a clean bed, um, a clean bathroom, fresh towels, and a good safe, and that's it. And then I'm ready to roll. Um, I don't really want the rest of the service stuff that hotels offer. I'm not interested in massages and I don't often eat into hotels, which is why, again, the Premier Inns for me are great being owned by Whitbread. You know, they've got all these great pubs next to them where you can have a good meal and a good pint once you've parked the car, because obviously you don't want to drink and drive in this day and age. I think there's an interesting thing with that with that kind of uh, hotel. I particularly like Premier Inn myself, actually, because I, I find and, uh, and, and a, a lot of people talk about it as well is that because the rooms are identical, it doesn't feel like a new hotel every time you sleep. In one. Sure. And so you actually end up sleeping better, which is quite a nice thing. But when when we look at so if within the the airline industry, obviously there's huge competition, but there's also massive level differences between um, the level of comfort that you can buy yourself if you choose to. Um, and it's yes. the same in the hotel industry. What I think is very clever about that kind of Premier Inn experience is that they've taken some of the, the better parts of a stay and actually listen to what the business traveler is looking for. What do they want from their stay and what do they want everywhere they go? Um, and and manage to provide that at a price which is which is very, very reasonable. Agreed. I'm a, I'm a big advocate of, of learning from the best, if I can, whenever I can. Um, when, when you go and stay in some of these very flash hotels, um, mm. Obviously, they, there is a lot added to the service that you get. That you mentioned massages and all that kind of thing, but just the basic standard 
coming through the door, going to your bed, having some breakfast and leaving again. What are the what can we learn from those big hotels that we can take into our businesses? I think the elements of service, you know, uh, the human touch. It's a largely impersonal business, which is why I think hotels have lost so much to things like Airbnb. Um, but then you come back to the one thing that Airbnb can't deliver, which is a really good service. I mean, I, I have one particular hotel that I stay at regularly when I travel in the UK. Um, and the guys know me by name at reception, even though the receptionists change all the time. They try and give me a familiar room, one that I've stayed in before. And it's just that pleasantry, that meet and greet. The one that just says, wow, yeah, you know, we welcome you back. We welcome the fact that you're spending your pounds, your euros, your dollars or whatever it may be. And I think service in this day and age is, is absolutely a value differentiator. So the luxury hotels have it because they drill it into them. The more budget end can deliver a little bit more service. And that's why people are moaning about things like British Airways. You know, they've almost dumbed down British Airways to a level where um, they, they just don't deliver a basic service anymore. And in fact, you know, it's, it's, an, it's an extraordinary thing. The, the Boeing Corporation that builds these jets talks about passengers as payload. And I think that's been reflected in what people feel about Boeing in recent times because of the things that have taken place, you know, with the 737 MAX in particular and all the, the recent horrible airline incidents they've had. You can't talk about your customers as payload. And when you realize that, that everyone that, that spends money with you is a human being, and all we want is basic human decency, um, you know, if you can deliver basic human decency with a smile on your face, and it's not a chore, um, people have got passion in it, are the ones that do very, very well. I mean, you know, I've always believed I've, I'm, I'm privileged to do what I do around the world. I've earned my way up through it to do it. Um, and every single day for me is a privilege. Um, so I, that's, you know, I, when I meet a client, for example, at a conference day, I don't care if I'm speaking at four in the afternoon. I go for a day. Um, I, I sign a non-disclosure document with my clients, mm -hmm. uh, and often they don't have one, so I send them my own basic <laughs> one. Um, because I want to sit there and learn from them, and I want to learn about their business before they've given me the privilege of helping influence their people at, at, you know, at my time slot on the agenda. But I like to meet my clients at the door very first thing in the morning with a cappuccino because they worry about the speaker not turning up. Mm -hmm. And um, they also worry once they know the speaker's there about where do they get good coffee. So if I meet them at the door when they arrive with a cappuccino, that to me is just a little bit of service level that thinks more about the client. And, you know, there's a weird thing, James. You, you know this from, you know, being the great speaker across the world of conferencing and eventing that you are as well. We've all met the odd speaker, and more than an odd speaker, sadly, these days, who thinks they could sell you their bottled bathwater because they've become something special. You know, my wife reminds me there's always a, a message in my glove box in the car or uh, between the seats when I get back in at the airport that I fly to that's home. And there's always a message that says, hey, superstar, we need bread and milk. Or would you please stop and get dog food? What um, a great grounding that is. Oh, yeah. And, when, you know, we're, we're, we're privileged, you and I, to do what we do along with the rest of our colleagues. And, and it's all about great service. And if we can be of service to people, wow, they enjoy it, they respect it, and they respect you and enjoy you by return. So I think it's a win-win. But that you, I, I think you've hit something really interesting there when you said enjoy. You know, we love to work with people we like to work with because they're fun. 
Why would you want to work for someone who's hard to work with? Yeah, absolutely. I'm the, you know, people who are listening to this will always have that one person in their office. They can imagine them now in their mind's eye. You know, what they look like, how bloody grumpy they are, how much they moan, how, how they, where life is just a chore. Yeah. I, mean, I, I like to avoid people like that, like the plague, because I've tried to convince them that life is otherwise, and they're so bloody miserable, they'll never be convinced. So I don't believe in the power of motivational speaking either, by the way, because you can't tell ostriches that they're going to fly to work on a Friday afternoon, because on the Friday afternoon, they'll go, oh, yes, we love that. We'll fly to work on a Monday morning. They walk because they're ostriches. <laughs> so, you know, this, you've got motivational stuff. My goodness. I, I think true motivation comes from service, getting your heart out there, putting your heart on the line in everything that you do and enjoying yourself enormously. Fantastic. Motivational speaking is an interesting thing. I, I, I'm glad you opened that can of worms because uh, whenever I've been called a motivational speaker, I say, I'm not a motivational speaker. And I say, what do you mean? I say, well, no, I can motivate you to do anything, but unless you change your behaviour, unless you do something differently, what a waste of time. Yes. And the weirdest thing for me is that what I've learned, you know, I study change and that's all I've ever done since the days of working in the advertising industry before I became a full-time speaker around the world. I've always been fascinated by change and the human brain resists change naturally. We evolved to be apex predators as humans, but my goodness, you know, it took a long time for us to get here. And the fact of the matter is that we don't like change at all. So we go through, whenever we're confronted by change, this kind of negative approach to it. It's this kind of like surprise, then a bit of frustration, then disappointment and a bit of fear, a bit of denial even before the negative stuff eventually runs out. It takes a long while to get there. And then we start a bit of an upswing from the change curve, as I call it, into a little bit of trial and acceptance and a bit of progress and belief and finally delivery. But what's intriguing about that is that, you know, as creatures of habit, we go to work every morning, turning left or right out of our driveway and whatever mode of transport we're in, we get stuck in traffic. And then we moan about traffic in general terms. What we've got to realize is we shouldn't be moaning about traffic because we are the bloody traffic. That's what it is. It's us. Try something different. But you see, your brain, if you, if you left home tomorrow and turned right instead of left out of your driveway, if you uh, try to drive on a different route to work or took a different mode of transport, there'd be some stuff going on in your head that you'd be hearing. And it, that, it's stuff like, oh, that guy Jackson was an idiot, man. Why did you listen to that? How long have you lived where you've lived? Don't you think by now you've figured out the best way to get to the office and the right time? And if you put down the window of whatever mode of transport you're in, you'll realize those voices don't come from the outside in, they come from the inside in. We resist change always. And we look back in the rear view mirror of life. And yet the future's coming at us so bloody quickly. And it's so different and so unknown and we're looking backwards into the rearview mirror, hoping that we can solve problems because we've seen something like it before. And we haven't, James. You know that. I know that. Change will never happen as slowly as it is today ever again. And life is going to be incredibly different. And if we don't change constantly as humans, we run the risk of being left behind. I sound like a motivational speaker now, and that's not <laughs> what I intended to do. But I do think that if, if you can... If you shape the future, it's yours to grasp. If the future changes you, it can be very dangerous and very detrimental to your health and well-being. Boy, that sound 
Let's go back and re-record all of that because that's so much. That's so. No, do you know what? I really enjoyed that, um, but also you've got me thinking because I was uh, in in season one of the of the this podcast. I, I the last episode I spoke with Pam Warren, who's a, a very good friend of mine. Who was you, yes, you know, fantastic. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she said something really interesting because she she works uh, her life has changed radically because she was in a, in a terrible accident. Um. And she said now she's embraced change to the point where if life is too simple, she throws a grenade in and changes things. She needs that level of change all the time, um, which is, which is fabulous. Love it. When we talk about the speed of change and, and you, you said, you know, the, the world's never going to change as slowly as it is now. And I think that's a really interesting way to put it because it is changing phenomenally quickly. Work's changing phenomenally quickly yes. as well. Um how is how is work going to change in in the future well let, let me put it in conference terms first of all because you can see what's happening in our world right the old 45 minute keynote is dead um now people want a short sharp stab of something a 20 minute keynote people want to be involved in a conference not lectured at from a stage but they want to get dialogue going because fatigue has set in and i think that all good speakers are changing their industry around that but in the workflow you know, of, of modern life, when you think about it now, go back two generations and the people that are looking at life today from two generations ago are bewildered, they're baffled, and they're not embracing it. What we have to do in a world of uncharted waters, you know, it's, it's absolutely bizarre that what we've got to do is take a fresh look at what's happening around us and learn to embrace it. What are the kind of things that are changing? Well, you know, I guess that... Um, the way we consume information, the total transparency that exists in the world means that people tap on glass and expect an instant answer in this day and age. If you're in a service industry and you're not delivering it at the speed of tapping on glass, you're in grave danger of being left behind. We want simplicity. If the art of the soundbite is important in terms of the media, well, the art of simplicity is equally important in the art of business management. You know, the old fashioned way of building a business um, and companies, wow, man, they haven't changed very much since the Industrial Revolution. You know, when we started forming businesses, the only reference point we had, because nothing like them had ever existed before the, the mid, uh, uh, mid 1700s, the only reference point we had was the army when groups of people had gotten together with a general at the bloody top and management levels going down to the grunt troops at the bottom. So we stole from the army the business model back in the late mid-1700s that we still use today. Well, infrastructures are being flattened today. Nobody wants that old hierarchical type old-fashioned business. Um, and if you're delivering in that, you're drowning in bureaucracy. So, you know, if you're drowning in bureaucracy, um, you're slowing yourself down. You're slowing yourself down. You're making yourself less relevant. And even though you go, well, I'm, I'm you know, I'm pretty up to date. I've got email. I mean, please. Come on, do me a favor. If you've got less than three emails in your box right now, you're up to date. If you haven't, life is already passing you by. You're going to drown in it or ignore it or lose some stuff or whatever else it may be. Business is getting faster, changing, morphing. It's very, very different. The way that we dress, the way that we speak, the way that we act, the way that we interact. 
doesn't fit the old hierarchical model from the 1700s. Shane, you, you, I've just quickly checked my inbox. <laughs> I've got six in there. How many have you got? Six. Don't admit it. Um, I, six is good. Six is good because three of those are from me in the last fifteen minutes, right? Well, I've just, re- I've just, well, actually, I, I, I always chuck them into a snooze thing, and they pop back when I need them. Um, which, which actually, two of them are from you, yes. <laughs> but the um, keeping on top of the speed of information is very difficult, isn't it? Um, yes and no. I think that. Um, you know, the, the the information era has brought such radical change to us in the amount of information that's there. I think you've got to learn to sift it quickly and you've got to be aware of what's relevant. You know, the old Confucian style of Chinese business, identify what's important. Um, number two is eliminate everything else. And number three is what's left on your important list. If you can't do that on your own, automate it, delegate it or ask for help. Now, Confucius came up with that 3,000 years ago for the Chinese, and they only started applying it really when we did, when the technological revolution kicked into the world late 1970s with the birth of PCs and then mobile phones and the internet and so on and so on since then. China, as a result of simplifying its world, has gone from absolute zero economically to, to absolute hero, much to Donald Trump's disdain. Chinese population has gone from 88% below the poverty line in 1980 to under 3% today. And they just did three things, James. They identified what was important. They eliminated everything else. And then with the stuff that they had on their list from point one, they literally, if they couldn't do it themselves, in, um, automated it, got delegation involved in it or asked and got help from somewhere else. Biggest economy in the world. And that's happened in our lifetime. People are talking about China slowing down this year to 6.3% growth. 6.3% growth. No, and there's a good number in there because Asia, by the way, right now, 2019, is responsible for 63% of global growth. America, even with Donald Trump telling you how big it is, it's really big. It's the biggest it's ever been, according to Donald. America is 11% of global growth. And Britain, with Brexit or not with Europe, is 4% of global growth. You know what we should be doing is taking a second language and learning bloody Mandarin. Well, schools are, aren't they? You know, when I went to school, the, the language choices in Perth, well, the school I went to was French and Indonesian, neither of which were much better used. Yeah. Um, I did Latin, for goodness sake, you know, because I thought it would help me with my English. I'm nowhere near the level of Jacob Reese mob so it did help uh, me a uh, bit. But my goodness, I should have taken Mandarin. You've come in here, shout. You said you wouldn't swear, but you've said Donald Trump and Joe and and Reese Mogg in in one oh, sentence. <laughs> bloody hell! Sorry. <laughs> Dear you, me. You, let, can I just tap on automation for a minute? Because I'm I'm fascinated by the way that automation is being used in the service world. Yes. Um, particularly in terms of 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 help desks and that kind of thing. Yes. Is it good? Is it bad? Is AI going to be you know, obviously, I believe we're at the very beginning of the AI curve. Um, and by the time, you know, you and I are, are very much dead and buried, it's going to be probably pretty good. Um, how is it being used well in the world? And how are we, where is it being overused? Well, you, you can bust the jargon because the jargon comes in with, the, some people call it marketing 2.0, some people call it web 3.0, some people call it uh, tech 4.0 or the fourth industrial revolution. Um, what it really means is we're going to do what the Chinese did. You know, the drudge work is going to be handled by drones. Um, mm-hmm. It's never going to steal your job unless you're a drone. 
A computer today can beat you at chess with all the multiplicity of moves that that board game allows, but it doesn't know why it's playing chess. It can beat you because it can compute the mathematical formula. So yes, we're at the very, very beginning of the automate the automotive industry, uh, the automation industry at that level with with AI, I guess, in terms of where we are. But you know, good human beings contacting and working with each other, even in the call center industry. Although there are some call centers, I'd rather be phoned by a buddy robot than get my PPI sorted once. <laughs> so enough. You know, there are a number of things that are, that are happening in that space. But, you know, cute little Japanese robots on stage at the odd conference aren't going to crack the nut. Um, the industry is already automated. Will, will society automate it? Not for a while. Because, again, you see, we're still stuck in, you know, perceptual behavior, the, the, this radical behavior that we repeat over and over again. We put traffic lights in to control traffic. And we've still got them, even though we've got more traffic than the traffic light system was ever designed for. Hereford, by the way, one town in the UK is about to rip out all of its traffic lights. Now, is that anti-AI? I think it's very smart moves because what they've figured out through uh, being able to compute what goes down is that traffic lights slow you down. Drivers know what to do at a four-way intersection or a roundabout, and you will make traffic flow in this day and age because there's so much of it flow better with a traffic circle than you will with a red, amber, and green traffic light. So there's yeah. there's arguments on both sides, I guess, James. Well, isn't that interesting that, that everything old is new again? Um, and I, <laughs> I, I, I firmly believe that to be the case. If, if it's taking out traffic lights or it's actually having human beings looking after each other, we're, we're social creatures. We enjoy the interaction of others on the whole. Yes. and it's a- know, I saw a great T-shirt the other day that said, uh, people not such a fan. I thought it was quite funny, but the, you know, the fact is, it. we're social social human beings. Um, we need human interaction to to maintain a level of happiness, mostly. And actually, you know, there's a point where you don't want to tap on a keyboard and watch a video. You want someone to say, "Hey, how can I help you?" Sure, and we might want Tinder to meet our partner because you can go through a lot more than you can than by rather going to the village fete on a Sunday afternoon. Um, Facebook, by the way, thinking of automation, because it knows so much about us, um, Facebook is going to launch um, a dating site on Facebook next year. I can't year. believe it hasn't already. They're trialling it in Britain and what they call Europe. And when the press release came out recently about it, they said we're trialling it in Britain and Europe, assuming, of course, that Brexit had happened already. Um, yeah. But I guess, depending on whatever does happen there, we won't know until the, until everything sorts itself out. But um, when you think about when data makes things easier for you, maybe Facebook will even be more successful than Tinder or Grinder or whichever bloody app you're on to go and find your partner of choice these days. But apparently it's something like now within the millennial and Gen Z generation that eight out of 10 of them, apparently, and I'm not a fan of general... Nine out of ten times, I'm not a fan of generalized statistics. But but apparently eight out of ten of the younger generation are meeting their significant other on a social media app. So there's a little bit of technological advancement for you at some level. Although the divorce rate is still going to be as high as it has been for a while. So maybe it's not that great yet. I don't know. Well, Things are changing, but we've got to figure all this out, right? Well, a- absolutely. And uh, I, I've said before on this podcast, and I'll say it again, I am extremely happily married. I touch a lot of wood when I say that. Um, and I am delighted that I've never been on one of those sites. 
um, well, plenty of social media sites, but the dating sites. And but I also think that if uh, the the ability for people to access uh, others who are similar to them, where they couldn't have done so previously, is wonderful. And although people do, you know, they they rant on about the, you know, or Facebook knows so much about me. If Facebook could make a couple of people happy by introducing them to each other, how can that be a bad thing? Yeah, it's intriguing for me as well, because that goes back, right, you know, right back into this AI story. And to me, I think it was The Economist about a year ago, maybe a bit longer ago now, that said data is the new oil. And people were shocked and horrified by that statement. But if you control the data, you own the future. And that's what the, the industry is going to be, all industries are going to be doing. The manipulation surreptitiously of data that brings people together better, be it a dating app, be it in business, be it in a hotel, be it in whatever, you know, even, even in a conference at that level. And having the data, for example, will even help you improve your service offering. And that's going to impact your business bottom line. Well, that's a fantastic, fantastic point to, to leave off at. And I'm, I'm so pleased that you've, you've taken the time out. And, and thank you again, Michael, for doing that. But before we do, before we do wind up, I'd love it if you'd leave our listeners yes, with your, your one big thing, a great big golden nugget, something that they could do in their businesses today to make their businesses better for today and better for the years to come. What would that be? Oh, wow. Okay, top of my head, the thing that I always do, um, I hope this is enough of a nugget, um, I actually call it, I've got a sign on my desk for it, hashtag relentless marketing. Life and attention spans are both very short. You need to be in people's heads and faces as often as you possibly can be in the nicest possible way. So relentless marketing, because the world is not going to be the path to your door. You're going to have to go and find through your data the ways to the world itself. Make sure that if you're not doing anything right now other than relentless, sorry, let me rephrase that. Make sure that right now the only thing you're doing is continuous relentless marketing of you, your brand, and what it offers the world in a unique way. Wonderful, Mark. Thank you sure. so, so much. God, I sounded so motivational, James. <laughs> Love it. Bye for now. Cheers, then. I hope you really enjoyed this episode of The Only One Business Show, and I look forward to sharing your company again very soon. If you'd like to subscribe, please do so wherever you pick up your podcasts. And in the meantime, have a great day. Bye for now.